Hey everybody, God bless, good people. It is a, another episode of Uncommon Sense. I'm your host, Kevin Tony, And um, it's been a while since I did my last um, podcast. Um, since the last episode, I flew to Detroit with my family to visit. Um, my family, Detroit is, is home for me. That's where I'm from. So I went home to, um, visit with family and it was a good trip. It was good to get home. It was our first trip since, um, of course, COVID hit last year. So it was good to get away, um, and see my mom and dad and my sister and, you know, a lot of my family members from home, some of my friends I got a chance to hang out with too. And, um... It was an interesting trip. It was different being, you know, in a state different from, you know, North Carolina where I live now and, you know, dealing with COVID and the change in the scenario and, you know, how people in uh, in, in the local area respond to COVID as opposed to how they respond to it here in Charlotte. And so it was interesting. I was apprehensive about um, taking a trip for a couple of reasons. One, because I have a, we travel with small children. My wife and I have a five-year-old and a two-year-old. And, you know, since we flew, I was, you know, my wife and I were both concerned about my two-year-old and the federal mask mandate to the degree that I actually called Delta Airlines before uh, we flew to find out, you know, if it was going to be an issue. And we had cause for concern because we had seen all of these viral videos on social media of families being kicked off a plane because a two year old wouldn't wear a mask. And I thought that was ridiculous. And I just didn't want to deal with that. And. So, you know, I tried to be preemptive by, you know, calling the airline. I also have a god sister who's a flight attendant for Delta Airlines. And, you know, I reached out to her and had a conversation with her. And she gave me her honest um, feeling about, you know, what we could expect or what to potentially expect. And so um, I just didn't think it was it was it was right. It was a little it was just really inconvenient to go through all of that um, and have to worry about being subject to a federal fine at the most and being kicked off a plane, the inconvenience of having to get off and possibly being the subject of somebody videotaping us and going viral. And nobody wants that. You know, nobody, we didn't, we didn't want that attention. So we um, got on the flight, my two year old, um, she didn't keep her mask on for the entire flight, but she kept it on for the majority of the flight. Now, on the way flying to Detroit, we caught a break because my daughter, she fell asleep almost before the plane took off and she slept for the majority of the flight. So we caught a break uh, on the way and coming back. She stayed awake the entire flight, but she did. She did a good job of keeping her mask on. 
it was irritating to try, you know, to keep repeating to her, you know, you have to put it on. And of course, she's two. She doesn't understand. And the fact that, you know, these adult flight attendants um, all of a sudden just think that kids are supposed to just comply with everything. And so the ridiculousness of wearing a mask in itself on a plane where, you know, they say that, you know, the air filters and the purification system in the, in the cabin is some of the best um, that, you know, somebody can be um, exposed to. And yet you still have to wear a mask, even though the person in front of me is like three feet away. If not even that, they're less than less than an arm length away. So there's no such thing as social distancing on a flight, but you got to make sure you wear a mask. It's just the whole thing has really gotten completely ridiculous. But, you know, people are just afraid. Uh, the media has done an excellent job of making everybody afraid of COVID. I mean... I'm not a COVID denier. <clears throat> I know that it's real. I've had friends and family members that have tested positive for COVID. I've had friends in the hospital um, because of, you know, the effects that COVID had on them, coronavirus had on them. And so, you know, I know it's legit. Actually, honestly, I think that my mom's, I think I said this before on the podcast, my mom's uncle, my great uncle, I believe he died from from COVID because this was uh, January of 2020. He passed away. February 2020, he passed away, Uncle James. And he was, you know, in late stages of dementia. So in his mind, he couldn't articulate what he was feeling. He died in his sleep. He couldn't tell, you know, my aunt what his complications were. And so it's very possible that he died from COVID um, suddenly. So um, I, I believe that, you know, of course, I know it's legit. I mean, here we are. So um, but that's not what I'm you know, I don't want to focus on on COVID um, and, and all of that. But it's just interesting that we got a chance to see what that was like going through an airport terminals wearing a mask the entire way through, you know, worrying about if some, somebody who's a member of the COVID, you know, a COVID cop is going to run up on you and complain about the way you're wearing your mask or whatever. It's just, it's ridiculous. Um, you know, that, that has gone on, you know, um, it's, I feel like, um, (laughs) Cliff Huxtable used to tell the kids on the Cosby show when they, uh, when they would be cutting up, he would say, all right, you fooled around long enough. And that's how I feel with this, with COVID and these mask mandates. And that's how I feel with social distancing. And, you know, we fooled around long enough. And so I think it's, you know, a lot of people in the country are starting to feel that we don't have to go through this anymore. You know, people have figured out, you know, how to protect themselves from COVID. They figured out how to navigate through society. And I think, you know, we can do that um, as Americans. Um, So, but what I want to talk about 
one of the things that I thought was interesting on the, on the on the flight was going to Detroit and flying back to Charlotte on both flights. We had on on the way to Detroit a a white lady, two different white ladies came up to uh, myself and my wife and they complimented us on how well behaved our children were on the plane. And I and I understand that when you travel with small kids, you know, you walk down down the aisle of the plane to get to your seat and people see kids and they're like, oh my God, like what kind of kid is this going to be? Is this going to be a crying kid? Is it going to be an annoying kid? Is he going to be loud and bratty? You just never know because there are all these horror stories that go around about how kids behave on flights and how people just don't want to deal with that. And so I'm mindful of that because I felt the same way on flights where I see some kids and I'm automatically like, Jesus, please, you know, just help us get through this flight without this kid spazzing out or any, anything, just any number of scenario that you can think of. And so, um, to have this lady come to us, two different ladies, I said it was a white lady, uh, she, an older white lady and a younger, like a younger, um, white girl. She complimented us on how our children behave. Now, again, like I said, both of our children slept on the flight on the way there. They stayed awake on the way home and on the way home, a lady came to us and she also, another, another white lady came and she complimented us on how our children behaved on the flight. <clears throat> and I'm specifying this lady's race for a reason. Um, the, the, the interactions, you know, going to Detroit and coming back home, I'm specifying their race for a reason. And the reason is this. I, I thought about the fact that they came up to us and I said, you know what? Anybody who's looking, we're, we're so conditioned in this country and this society, we're so conditioned to see race in everything that you can find it anywhere you want to, anywhere you look. I mean, it, it's just in the smallest scenarios, you can say an, inter, an, an interaction happened because a person was black or a person was white or, you know, whatever. And so if I wanted to be ignorant to these ladies or my wife wanted to be ignorant to these ladies. And when I say ignorant, I'm not talking about not knowing. I'm talking about how people act ignorant and act foolish and act stupid. If I wanted to be that way, I could have easily looked at her and flipped the situation and flipped the compliment on her and been like, well, how are they supposed to act? How would you, how do you expect little black kids to act on the flight? You know, we, we could have done that. And I know people that find ways to make everything about race. And I, and I think that is pathetic um, in this country. It's, it's really sad. So what do we do? We take the compliment. You know, we, we, me and my wife, we high five each other because it kind of shows us that, hey, we, we, we're on the right track in raising our kids and teaching them to be mannerable and respectful to others in public. So we take the win instead of looking for the doom and gloom or feeling, you know, you know how some people just look for, well, what do you mean? What do you mean they, they were well behaved? These little black kids, what, how are they supposed to act on the flight? It just take the win because I, I've noticed 
Um, I remember when I was a kid, my mom and dad used to take us to restaurants, me and my three sisters. And my, my mom and dad used to take us to restaurants. And as a kid, we'd be sitting at a restaurant. And I remember when, just like on the airplane, people would come up to our table and compliment my parents on how well behaved their children were in the restaurant. And I didn't understand that until I had children because you're worried about how they're going to act. You're worried about if they're going to interrupt somebody's, you know, meal at the table next to you. And so, um, you know, I watched my mom and dad take those compliments and it was just assurance to them that they were doing the right thing and teaching us how to behave in public, um, how to be decent how uh, to do things in decency and order. The Bible talks about doing de- doing things decently and in order and being in order. And so, you know, that has trickled down to how we, my wife and I, are raising our children. And so, because everything is so charged, like so much has happened since since that last, since that flight, you know, to Detroit, spending time with family, coming home. Um, right after we got back, the Derek Chauvin trial was starting to heat up. Uh, was really starting to get rolling. And you had all these instances to happen, you know, you know, parallel to the trial, you know, being in progress with, you know, the Adam Toledo shooting in Chicago. Then you had Dante Wright, um, get shot in, you know, Minneapolis. And then it was Micaiah Bryant, you know, on the, on the day of the George Floyd trial, the Derek Chauvin verdict was handed down. Um, and so it just, you know, it makes me think about how much you want to stop talking about race, but I don't think we'll ever be allowed to stop talking about it in this country because somebody always finds a way to bring it up on social media, in the news. Somebody always wants to talk about it. These um, these pain points and these pressure points for black people in America. And as a community, we're so conditioned to make race the number one um, hot button issue in our lives that we fall for it every time. And it literally is like, it's old. I mean, I don't take away from the, you know, there are ignorant people in America. There are racist people. America is racist. It is a racist country, but it's not racist the way people think it is. Okay. And that's a concept that I've been thinking about after the last, over the last maybe week and a half, like, you know, this is a racist country, but it's not racist the way the media portrays it. It's not racist the way social media portrays it. Um, I don't think America is any more racist than any other country in the world. I don't think as a black man, you know, for one, first of all, if America really is as racist as everyone says it is, like I, I, I really struggle to think of another country where black people are doing better than they are in America, you know, financially, um, socially, I don't, I don't know the, you know, with the, the freedoms that we enjoy in this, it, no matter how much they try to say that, 
you know, our freedoms are being infringed upon. I don't know another country that black people are moving to. And you have all these black, you know, the Sean Kings and the D.L. Hughleys and the Umar Johnsons and all of these people who talk about, you know, how oppressed we are, Tariq Nasheed, all these people who talk about white people are the dominant society. And, you know, it's just so terrible for black people. But I never hear any of them say this is the country that black people should be moving to. This is where black people should go so that we can get up underneath, get out from underneath the boot of white America and finally be free. It's, it's just, it's nonsense. It's really, it really is nonsense. Um, and you ask him that question and none of them have an answer for it. And so, um, these are people that, you know, these people that I just mentioned, you know, they've, they've made their platforms, you know, the f- racism and race are the foundation of their platforms. If why they have catapulted them and earned them the following that they have because they're able to pull on people's emotional heartstrings and trigger them uh, into falling for uh, the okie doke. And so if you take race out of the equation, if, if we... If we come together as a as a community, black, white, Asian, Hispanic, um, Indian in this country, if we all decide that tomorrow we've had enough, enough is enough, and we just not we're gonna unite, live in unity, and and live in harmony, and there's no more racism. These people's platforms, their income streams, their livelihood would disappear altogether. So it stands to reason that they're benefiting from pushing all of this stuff. They're benefiting from it. Al Sharpton has benefited for decades on race relations and the emotionalism that comes along with racism. Jesse Jackson, all of these these names, these civil rights leaders' names, they've all benefited. Um... To the tune of, in a country that's so racist, here's Al Sharpton who gets his own TV show on a mainstream media network. So, it's just really, I don't understand how people don't connect these dots. And and I'm starting to think, honestly, I'm starting to think that there is a group of black people out there that are not conservatives. They're not libertarians. Uh, I think these are... um, Democrat-minded black people who are getting tired of having the race card uh, shoved in their face at every given turn. And I ask myself, like, what is it like to live in a perpetual state of emotionalism where you're constantly in your feelings about what someone is doing to someone else that doesn't directly affect you but uh, could be an indicator of how, you know, they, they try to make it seem like it's an indicator of how the collective group is perceived. And it's, it's crazy to me. Um, I, had a, I had a conversation with my mother and father-in-law. Uh, my father-in-law is 77 years old. My mother-in-law, she's 73. And... We had a conversation a couple of weeks ago about the Derek Chauvin trial. And it got pretty intense because they feel a certain way 
about how blacks are treated in this country. And I feel a certain way about how blacks are treated in this country. And we were able to have a discussion that even though it got intense, it didn't get disrespectful. Um, We remained cordial. Um, And I think it was a healthy discussion. I understood their perspective being the age that they are. They've lived a lot longer than I have. They've seen a lot more than I have. My father-in-law grew up in um, South Carolina. He was born in South Carolina. Um, And, you know, he saw a lot of things growing up. My mother-in-law was born in... um, She's born in New York. I think she lived in Kentucky for a little while. I might have that backwards. She might have been born in Kentucky and lived in, in New York, you know, all her life. But, you know, they are uh, Democrats to the bone. And they believe that America is racist. They believe that black people don't have a chance in this country. And I asked them, where should black people go? If America is not the greatest country for him. And the reply was, well, we're not saying we should leave. And I thought that was interesting. Um, And I think that's how most black people in this country feel. Because when you don't have, when you don't, when, when you're fed an answer that you didn't come to on your own. And you don't take any means to search out where that answer came from or why it was given to you. Then you settle into it and you get comfortable with it. And it's just a knee-jerk natural reaction to give that response to say, you know, we don't like it here, but we don't want to leave. And and that's insanity. So a lot a lot happened, man. A lot has has happened in this country. You know, you you've seen the rise of, you know, the new the new it thing is um Asian hate. You had the shooting in Atlanta where uh, the white the white guy went into a couple of uh, massage parlors and he you know he killed uh, he killed eight people six of them were Asian two of them were white but the news focused on the Asian people and they touted it as an Asian hate crime and when the shooter when they found out the shooter you know just had a a problem with um, sexual perversion in his mind. And it wasn't a thing against Asians, you know that that story was quickly pushed to the background, and it, it just to me like Asian hate is a new thing. Like I don't, you know, I don't I don't know that anything has changed over the over the last several years where you know Asians um, are so threatened and and now they're now in the sights of white supremacists and you know white whitey is now going after Asians. Asians are the target now. I think that's just something that they feed us. Um, I think most people don't take the time to do the research and show that 27% of crimes against Asians are committed by black people. Let me not say black people. I'm going to say 27% of crimes against Asians are committed by black criminals. Because when you say black people, that indicates you know that that in, that's a blanket statement to include the 13% of the black population in America. And that's not true because I'm not committing any crimes against Asians. The next number underneath that 24% of crimes against Asians are being committed by white criminals. So a 3% margin of 
who Asians have to be worried about having a crime committed against them. And think about why that is, because Asian businesses open up mainly in black neighborhoods. You have your beauty supply stores, your nail salons. Beauty supply stores, nail salons. They open up in uh, in black neighborhoods. You might have a Chinese restaurant that opens up in a white neighborhood. And Chinese restaurants in black neighborhoods too. So there are three different businesses that open up in black neighborhoods. Um... White people get nails, they get nails, uh, they get, you know, manicures and pedicures. So a nail salon will open up in a white neighborhood. A Chinese restaurant will open up in in a white neighborhood. Um, So you don't, you know, the news won't report that. They won't talk about that. They won't talk about how, you know, these numbers are showing that blacks are committing, black criminals are committing most of these Um, crimes against Asians and I think we need to start specifying that when they talk about that black people even though we make up 13% of the population black people are committing 50% of the crimes and homicides in this country I'm gonna start saying black criminals because again I'm black I'm not committing crimes you know the people that I know, my friends are all black. They're not. Out, they're not out committing crimes. They're not breaking the law. Um, and so, it's it's. I don't know how people don't ask these questions, and it just tells you how low the bar is when it comes to the way the media reports and how they treat, you know, us. And if we are thirteen percent of the population, why can't we just be left alone? You know, what is it about? the black community that the media feels like they have to coddle us and target us so much. You have the voting rights bill that gets passed in Georgia and then everybody goes around and talks about how voting rights, uh, voter ID, uh, I'm sorry, the voter ID bill, or it's not even a voter, a voting ID bill, but they trying to, you know, they, they try to bring this up and say that it's racist to ask black people to present an ID. And it's just ignorant. I talked about this on the on the podcast before about how foolish on its face that is to assume that black people don't have the wherewithal to get an ID. But white people, Asian people, Hispanic people, Indian people, they do have the wherewithal. They are able to get an ID, but black people are the ones that need help. And I don't understand how other black people look at that and don't see that that's a problem. You know, <laughs> it's just crazy how, I mean, I, the, the, the conditioning of our minds is so deep-seated and it goes back so many years that it's just, it's inherent and we pass it down to our children. It's, you know, the fear of being black, the fear of, you know, I, I had to I had to literally tell somebody that I don't it doesn't when I walk out the door every day, I don't think about if I'm going to have an interaction with police that 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 could end my life. I just don't think about it. So and they were shocked to hear me say that as a black man. And so 
here's the other thing too. Like, I think that there's a problem um, with white white people who see themselves that want to help black people or they want to sympathize with our pain. They want to feel us. They want to be on our level. They want to be, you know, they want to they want to be down. And there's nothing wrong with that. If you black, I mean, if you white and you embrace black culture, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. You know what I mean? We're not. I, I just don't have a problem with it. I never have. Um, to me, I think it's it's um, you know, black culture is so dope that I think everybody should embrace it. Um, it's a lot of great things about black culture. It's a lot of great things about white culture. It's a lot of great things about Asian culture, Hispanic culture, Indian culture that we all should be embracing together. But here's a problem. You have these these people. And I'm going to say this, and and this is just this is just my perspective. This is what I see um, from people that I know and, you know, from people that I follow on social media. I see more white women who embrace black culture that seem to make it a point to champion black causes and kind of go overboard. And to me, I think this is just, I don't know what to call it. I just think it's, I I don't know. I don't, I I just like, Hey, white ladies, you love the brothers. That's fine. We get it. I, I don't have a problem with that at all. I don't have anything against interracial relationships, interracial marriage, None of that. I think all of that is great. But I don't think you have to try so hard. You don't you don't have to try so hard. Um it's okay because the crazy thing about it is like these these white people who um automatically want to side with Black Lives Matter, you know, they want to feel the pain of black people and cancel culture and you know, systemic racism and, you know, black America is racist and white privilege is prevalent everywhere. White privilege is around the corner. To me, those people, um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know about white privilege uh, because I think white privilege does exist the same way black privilege exists, the same way Hispanic privilege exists, the same way Asian privilege exists, Indian privilege exists. You go into an Indian community and they're going to respond to you in a way that shows that you don't have Indian privilege. But nobody complains about that. You know, so it's just a focus on white people. Every You know, people just think that, you know, white the white man is just the boogeyman around the corner that's responsible for everything wrong in this country. And so you have black people who... I mean, uh, you have white people who are subscribing to this narrative that, you know, I need to do my part because I'm white and they accept foolishness like the concepts of systemic racism, critical race theory, that these are concepts that, you know, to the white guy or the white girl, no matter how many black people you help. No matter how many, no matter how kind and how sympathetic you are to black people, no matter how much you love your uh, black boyfriend or your black girlfriend or your black husband or your black wife, 
No matter what systemic racism and critical race theory says, it doesn't matter that you do all of those things. You're a racist to the bone and there's no way for you to come out from underneath that. And if I'm a white person, I'm offended. I'd be pissed off if somebody would tell me that, you know, I'm the type of person that loves everybody, treats everybody the same, respects everybody. And no matter what I do at the end of the day, I'm supposed to accept the fact that, oh, it doesn't matter what I do because I'm white and I was born white. I'm still racist. And I'm just trying to atone for the way my people have treated your people in the past. It is ludicrous. <laughs> it's just, it's preposterous to think that way. And I don't like it when Christians, okay, Christians, Christian people, <laughs> here we go. I'm going to get spiritual on you for a second. People in church don't have any business subscribing to critical race theory or systemic racism, a system that says no matter what you do, you are who you are. You're racist. I don't care how much you love us. I don't care how much you work in a soup kitchen in the black community and serve the black community and give backpacks to kids every year when school starts. I don't care if you pack lunches on the weekends for kids that don't have food on the weekends and get all their meals in school. It doesn't matter. All of that is because you're racist and you're just doing time for being white. You're serving a penance for being white. <laughs> it's buffoonery. <laughs> it is it is buffoonery. Like I don't I don't understand that because to the Christian, once you give your life to God and you repent, you're forgiven of every whoever you were is irrelevant because of the sacrifice that Jesus made. Who you are does not matter. So that turns the concepts of critical race theory on its face. That means white person, white man, white woman who's a believer. You've given your life to Christ. You go to church, you pay um you you know, you give your offering, you help uplift the 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 church community. You you serve in the local church, you work in the local church. You know, what that means is you've given yourself to Christ. You're no longer who you were. So it's it's confusing it's contradictive and it's unbiblical for you to think that you have to support um, these ideas and and, sub and subscribe to the concept of, you know, I have to act less white. I can't use my white privilege because I may offend somebody. But that's not who you are anymore. The same for black people. The same for Hispanic people, the same for Indians, whoever you are, it doesn't matter. Your life in Christ is now hidden when you, uh, your life is hidden when you come to Christ and, and the, the God in you is pushed to the forefront. So you can't have, um, you, you can't, you just, the, the, the two identities just, they cannot exist. They cannot, ex they cannot exist from a spiritual perspective, from a biblical perspective. It's, it just doesn't work. And you hear people who uh, subscribe to that, that scripture in the Old Testament that says, uh, Behold, the heart is desperately wicked. Who can know it? Yeah, but, you know, that's Old Testament thinking. 
when, you know, everybody was under the law. But when you come over to grace and you hear um, Jesus say, behold, I've given you a new heart. So when you give your life to Christ, you get a new heart, a heart that's not desperately wicked. A heart that knows the uh, that 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 has uh, that is a gateway to know the mind of Christ. A heart that understands that you can't, you just can't have two identities, two warring identities, identities that are bumping up against each other constantly. That's why Paul said there is no more male or female, there is no Greek nor Jew. That's why the Bible says from one blood uh, created all nations. You know, I don't understand how you have these pastors, these uh, especially these black pastors, these evangelical pastors who want to, you know, on the on the on both sides of the fence. You have these pastors that want to um, perpetuate the victimization of blacks by whites and being oppressed by uh, a racial uh, system in this country. And that we're always victims. We're not good enough or we, you know, we deserve better. We want equal treatment. And you have likewise these white evangelical pastors, these white pastors on the other side of the fence that feel like they have to change the way they the way they interact with black people. And I, 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 while I'm talking about this, I am planning to do a podcast because no place is more segregated than the church on Sunday morning. And I, and I intend to do a full a full podcast to talk about the differences between black church, white church, the difference between gospel music, the difference between the segregation of um, Christian contemporary CCM music, the Deller, the, the Stellar Awards and the Dove Awards, you know, all of that stuff is, I don't think God is happy about any of it. You have black, black church members who will go and sit underneath a white pastor but you don't have you have white people that will not go and sit under a black pastor. Why is that? I I want to I'm gonna do a, I'm planning a whole entire episode to strictly talk about the line of division in the church in terms of racism, from Sunday morning itself to the music, the segregation in gospel music, and the segregation in Christian contemporary music. And um, it's, it's something that I have discussed with, you know, people in the faith community for a long time. And it is it's nobody ever talks about it, but we love to jump and, and we'll, you know, throw around the social justice warrior um, and, and get behind those concepts. And it's ridiculous. I just I don't I don't understand it. So um. I just get tired of talking about racism. I get tired of it being in my face. I get tired of, you know, having somebody try to make me believe that I'm supposed to be afraid all the time. And I just don't like that. I don't like that. I don't want my children raised that way. I don't want my, my, uh, I have a five-year-old son and I have a two-year-old daughter and it's no way in the world that I'm going to allow them to grow up and be afraid and be fearful of the police. I'm not going to allow them to have a stigma that the police are just out to get them. And black people, we need to quit. This defund the police, we need to quit because as soon as 
uh, Jojo or Pookie rob you or steal from you, who are you getting ready to call? You get ready to call the police. Something happens to your child. Your child gets hurt. You're going to call the police. You get into a car accident. You're going to call the police. The police are going to be called. If you get into it, I mean, just, we need to stop. So if we're going to, if we're going to, if you're going to go out there, then go all the way out is what I'm saying. If you're going to go, don't go out to the edge, go over the edge. And let's just get to a, a complete community of straight lawlessness like they got in Portland right now. I just think it's so, it's, it's ridiculous. And people are cowards because they like to talk and jaw jack about what we need, what we should be doing. Everybody's got a soapbox until it's time to actually do some work. I think that's why I like, um, you know, Maj Ture has become my favorite um, social media figure in the last couple of months. I've always rocked with him and his Black Guns Matter movement. Um, but he is, he's become my favorite, my favorite page on between him and Angela Stanton because, you know, they take these positions where black people are concerned and the black community is concerned. And they're like, you know what? I'm going to let my work speak for itself and show you what I'm doing in the black community to make change. And to everybody else who's just on a soapbox talking and don't have anything to show, there are no tangibles to show what they've accomplished in the black community. I'm going to let my work speak for itself. And when it comes time to measure, you know, to pull out the measuring stick to see who's actually done something in um, the black community, we're going to see who's who, who measures up and who's found wanting. And most of these black leaders, most of these black woke Negroes are all going to be found wanting. I mean... You know what, man, if you if you're trying to, you know, if you're trying to set up programs in black communities where people can come to a class and take a course and actually benefit and benefit their lives. That's one thing. Okay, those are great. Those are tangibles. That's what we call. um, That's to me. I I, I think that that is the concept of, you know, um, take you fishing. And you can eat for a day. But if I teach you to fish, you can eat for a lifetime. And so when you have these people that go into the black community and are willing to teach these concepts to the community that will benefit them a week from now, a month from now, a year from now, 10 years from now. Those are lasting impressions as opposed to, you know, some black woke radio personality that's setting up a book bag giveaway or a Coke giveaway that, you know, is viewed as your reasonable service, you know, something that you can put on a resume. We do a Coke giveaway every year. I mean, that's good. It's nice. You know, kids need coats. Uh, Kids need backpacks for school. But I mean, come on, man. It's just, (laughs) it just doesn't measure up. So, Um, I don't know. I just, I think that, um, I think we're in an interesting time in America. Um, it's very tiring. It's very mentally draining. Um, I haven't been watching the news. I just don't like what I've been hearing. I just, I'm, I'm over it. I'm so over it, man. And you know what I miss? 
I miss laughing. I miss the funny stuff. I miss, you know, real comedy. I miss, you know, even on social media, man, on, on pages where you follow people that, you know, are known for being funny and posting funny stuff. They're not as funny anymore because everybody wants to rush to be woke. There's no more laughing. Nobody's laughing anymore. Nobody's happy anymore. And it's, it's training. Everybody's so serious all the time. And it's just, it's so aggravating. And I'm so over it. So, I don't know, man. Let's just get back to the funny stuff, man. It's just like you take, I take breaks from social media because I get tired of people being so serious all the time. And, you know, you want to talk politics and you want to talk what Joe Biden is doing or what he's not doing for black people. And I'm just, just give me a break. Seriously. Give me a, a whole break. I don't. I really don't think people care as much as they, as, as people, you know, as these, these, um, these businesses think they do. And it was prevalent. Like I don't watch the Oscars. I never have. I don't like, I have a thing about award shows, period. You know, as a musician myself, I don't really get into, you know, music award shows, stellars, uh, Billboard, American Music Awards, the Grammys. I don't, I've never gotten in, even as a kid, like I was never like rushing to watch the Grammys because I feel like one, because they don't highlight all of, um, real musicianship. They just highlight what's popular. And that's a big problem to me, but I just never have movies, the, the Oscars, the Golden Globes, the Emmys. I never paid attention to any of that stuff because you know, um, the TV shows that I like to watch, they get basically honorable mentions, but they don't win awards. And then, you know, as of the last couple of years, you know, Hollywood, I don't even want to talk about how bad Hollywood is now and how awful the material is that they're putting out and how unoriginal Hollywood is. But you had the Oscars that came on Sunday and they had the lowest ratings that they've ever had. I think it was something like 9 million people watched the Oscars Sunday night, which to me is still a lot of people. But that's a huge drop off to whereas the previous two years you had 20 million or more people watching the Oscars. And that's because people are sick of the woke drama. They're sick of all of these entities. These businesses are going that, you know, nobody cares. The ratings are all the NBA ratings are horrible because they're tired of the wokeness. People don't want that. When they look at sports. Entertainment is an escape from everyday life. Sports. Music. Movies. TV. People turn on that stuff. When they want to escape. From what's being shoved down their throats. From mainstream media. And from the news. And the sadness. And the patheticness of how. People can be to other people. They go to TV. They go to the movies, they go to sports events, they go to concerts to escape all of that stuff. And, you know, um, we used to have, um, it just, it's just so different now. You know what I mean? Uh, and I think I, people are tired. People are, I know I am. I know I am. I don't think that, I don't know. I really don't know. So it's it's just what are we going to do? What are we going to do, America? 
how do we get past this? What will it take to get past this? So, I don't know. I think that um, we got to make some changes. We got to do something better. And uh, we got to come to a place where we're not so triggered. Um, I think that there's a remnant of people out there that don't buy into the bullcrap. They don't buy into it. And I know you're out there. I know you're listening. I know you're tired. And I'm here to tell you that I feel your pain. I'm tired right along with you. So um, I'm going to stop. I'm going to wrap it up. This is the longest podcast I've done so far. I didn't I didn't really. I'm going to stop here. But um, I'm praying for you wherever you are. Hope your families are safe and well. Um, stay happy. Find something fun to do. Find something, do something that makes you laugh. Do something to take your mind off of everything. Turn off the TV. If you got to take a social media break to get away from it all, I totally get it. And if you can't find anything funny now, go back and find one of your favorite comedy movies from back in the day, back before everything was so woke and so uh, so relevant and so now. And so just forget all of that. Just Go back and do it. I think I'm probably going to watch Trading Places. Eddie Murphy, Dan Aykroyd. It's one of my favorite Eddie Murphy movies. Um, I don't know. Find something. Listen to some music that makes you happy. Some music that's not politically driven. That's not politically woke. You know, TV now. Just forget all of it. Anyway, if you have any questions, you want to reach out to me, you can send me an email at uh, uncommonsensewithkt at gmail.com. And I'm going to try to get back and do this again as soon as possible. uh, So it's not too long before there's another break. But in the meantime, stay blessed.